Exodus chapter 4, we'll be beginning in verse 1. Exodus 4, 1. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me, or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail, which, by the way, is not a smart thing to do with snakes, okay? So don't do that. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they might believe, the Lord says, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now furthermore, said, he said to him, the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water will become, which you take from the Nile, will become blood on the dry ground. Let's pray. Father, we pray for wisdom and understanding as we pour over these scriptures. As we seek to understand not only the story of Moses and his life, but as we seek, Lord, to understand the greater implications for our lives today. Help us to understand these things in their context, but also to apply them, Father, into the lives that we live. So that, Lord, we can not just be hearers of the word, but we can be doers of the word as well. Spirit, we ask you to guide us into these things and be our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we find Moses, 80-year-old shepherd of Midian, in the middle of an amazing invitation from God to become his deliverer. And Moses is questioning the call. He's questioning the call. First words out of Moses' mouth in verse 1, What if they won't believe me? What if they don't believe that you actually spoke to me? What if they don't believe that you told me to come and do this? And Moses, he's worried. He's questioning it. And wouldn't you? Put yourself in the sandals of Moses, actually in the bare feet of Moses at this particular moment, standing before the Lord in all of his holiness, telling you to go back to Egypt and get the children of Israel. Would you not feel a little concerned that when you got there, the said children of Israel would say, who in the world are you and why should we believe that God spoke to you? Has anyone here ever had that experience? I'm sure the Lord's telling me to do this. And people around you say, how do you know? How can you be positive? How are you sure? We worry like Moses did. Sometimes I believe we don't even follow the call of God because we're afraid that other people are not going to believe that God spoke to us. That God is leading. That God wants us to do what we're sure that He wants us to do. We don't act for fear of peer pressure. And teenagers, let me just tell you something. It doesn't stop when you become an adult. We like to think it does. Oh, yes, peer pressure is an adolescent problem, and we grow out of that. Baloney! Every adult in here knows that you live and you face peer pressure on a daily basis. It may be in the office. It may be out with friends who are non-Christians. You find yourselves doing and acting in ways that you would not act 
if it weren't for peer pressure. If it weren't that there were people around you either not believing that you're following the Lord or trying to encourage you to do other things. It's fear of the naysayer. And so I believe good Christian people oftentimes will not follow direct calls of the Lord because they're afraid of what other people are going to say. Oh no, what if they don't believe me? The question is not whether they believe you. The question is, do you believe God? And if you believe God, then act on what you believe God has led you to do. The problem is not with the Lord, folks. It's with man. And the man is afraid that no one will believe him. Again, have you ever been absolutely sure that the Lord was calling, but have people around you say the Lord is not calling? This is not of the Lord. If you've been in that place, would you remember something? Look back at Exodus chapter 3. Verse 14, as Moses is in the same conversation with God, earlier on God says the following, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And God says, listen to this, don't miss this, This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Yours and mine included. It's my name. And if you're ever feeling like, well, people won't believe me, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. It is about who God is and what He wants and how He is directing and leading your lives. Not about who you are. Man, when we focus on who we are, we get all mealy-mouthed and wishy-washy and we lose track and we fear and we lose confidence. But God says, hey, place your confidence in my name and in the fact that I am God and you are not. Man, I take solace in that. Every single time, and I've said this before, every time I get up to teach you all, I take solace in the fact that I am not God and He is. I'm thankful for that knowledge, for understanding that. But folks, even with the great confidence of God's name and His immediate presence as the great I am, we still tend to doubt our ability to be effective for the Lord, don't we? We still wonder, how can God use me, even if we believe He's calling? We say, Lord, how do, I, how do you use me? i got nothing to offer. I don't have any special gifts or talent. I'm not like Steve Sweeney, who plays saxophone so beautifully, by the way. Isn't he great to have along on board? He just came up and said, do you ever let other people play? And I said, absolutely not. Who do you think you are? <laughs> And then he played his sax and I went, oh yeah, we let people play all the time. <laughs> I'm not like him. I can't play the sax. I can't play the guitar. I can't get up and I get scared to death when I'm talking to more than like two people. That's it. I don't have gifts, talents, abilities. I can't build like other people can build. I have no artistic I'm just a person. I show up at church and there I am. How can God use me? You know what's great about this? That's exactly what Moses says. Same exact thing. Moses will try in chapter 4 to persuade God that he's the wrong man for the job. Not me. I'm just a shepherd with a staff, a one-time guy in Egypt who ran away because I blew it. Not me. I'm the wrong guy. He's going to try and persuade God that someone else would be better suited for this work. He's going to try to persuade God that leading the people out of Egypt is just not his ministry. Sounds an awful lot like us. Again, when God invites you to the work of the kingdom, may simply give you advice that nothing else matters. That when God invites you to work in the kingdom, He has not only a call, 
but he has components of ministry. You are, as we said last week, you're a tool in the hand of the Father. You're a tool in God's toolkit. And the problem again with the tools is we might think, well, I just don't have enough functions. There are not enough components to me as a tool. So he really, maybe he could use me here, but he can't use me in all these other areas. Let me give you this morning some components to the tool that you are. You're a tool. I remember a few years ago, being a tool was like being a stud. It was kind of like, yeah, hey, guy's a tool. You can say that. Hey, I'm a tool for the Lord. That's what I am. And I have more than one component to my function. It's important that you follow the Lord, folks, at all costs, because God's call is serious business. And rejecting God's call, even for lack of confidence, is serious business. Hear me loud and clear, there is not a person in here that God does not want to function in the kingdom. There is not a person in here that God does not call to be at work among his people and in this world. Not a one of us can sit here and get away with the fact that we don't have anything to give. You're telling this to the creator who made you the way you are and he has something for you to do. Well, Moses said, I don't have the skills. I don't have the training. I don't have the equipment. And the Lord is about to show Moses that in fact, yes, he does. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We saw this last week. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Why? So that we would walk in them. Not so that we would sit back and question them. But so that we would walk in them. And by the way, we're not trying to break out a bunch of new ministries at the bridge here. That's not what this is about. This is about serving in the kingdom however God has prepared you to serve. You and I, we're like Swiss Army Knights. By the way, have you ever wondered, why does the Swiss have an army? What's that all about? I don't understand that. But we're like Swiss Army Knights. We are multifaceted. But a lot of us just have pulled out one blade and left everything alone for so long it's a little rusty. And we're not sure how to use it or how to be used by God. Watch what God tells to Moses. This is amazing to me. Verse 2, he says, What is in your hand? My hand? A staff. What's in your hand? The Lord says. A staff. Three components this morning to affect His ministry in the kingdom. Number one, your hand. Your hand. What is in your hand? Moses said, my shepherd's staff. And God says, great, that's what I'll use. It's already in your hand. I'm going to use this, Mo. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 tells us, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. What do you mean accordingly? According to the grace given to us. We have different gifts, different abilities, different functions within the body of Christ and in the world. And Paul says we're supposed to use them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of your faith. If service, in your serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Or he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Who is Paul talking about here? Everybody but me. (laughs) Because I don't have anything to give. But everybody else does. So obviously this verse is for them. No, no. He is talking to you and to me personally. Now stop and think for a moment. What's in your hand? What is in your hand? Paul was a scholar. He was a student of Gamaliel. So God says, excellent Paul, that's what I'll use. You're going to write most of the books of the New Testament. Jesus looks at Peter, a fisherman, and says, Perfect, Pete! 
You will now be a fisher of men. Instead of catching carp, I'm going to have you catch soul. John was out mending nets. You know what's great about John? He was a mender of nets. He was also a mender of relationships because he was the, the apostle of love. John was always about love. Love each other. It comes out of John's mouth over and over and over. Love each other. And so God looks at this mender of nets and says, Great, you're going to mend people, John. This is what I'll have you do. And Moses with a shepherd, with a shepherd's staff. All right, Moses, take up your staff. Use what you have. What I've given you. How you've been trained. I'm an engineer. There's a way to use that for the Lord. I'm a liar. Lawyer. There is a way to use that for the Lord. Corey and I were talking the other day. He loves to write stories. He's been writing stories since the fifth grade. And very cool stories, by the way. And we're talking about the fact that you don't have to be a pastor to be used by the Lord. You can take what your, your writing ability... And he could write. He said, I think and I, I might like to write Christian fiction. Oh, that would be awesome. Use what you have. What is in your hand? What are you holding on to? Let it go. People say, how can I serve? God says, what's in your hand? Let's take a look at that. Do you realize that you may already be doing the thing that God is going to use in ministry? Leo Donkey comes up to me as we're figuring out this whole property thing and says, hey, listen, God. I've been doing clearing most of my life. I've got a backhoe and all this great big equipment. And you know, if you need, to, need some help, I can clear a little bit of your land. So in ministry, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, Leo. Don't anybody look at me because I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> but in ministry, he showed up over there and cleared and graded some land for me. That's using what's in your hand. I drive tractors. How can I use that for the Lord? He did. What's in your hand? Sometimes, like Moses, we've been carrying around a seemingly innocuous ability for years without realizing how powerful it can be. And you know, I I think, and and I don't want to downplay the spiritual gifts because they are powerful and necessary and useful among people as the Holy Spirit sees fit. But hear me on this. We need to demystify them a bit. We need to not be so afraid of, oh, there's this thing out there. There's a spiritual gift. The gifts of God tend to be more simple and practical and useful than they do mystical. While we're out there looking for the miraculous and the stupendous, God says, what's in your hand? Use it. But watch this. Before you get all fired up about a particular gift that you have, that you think all of a sudden, hey, I can use this for the Lord. Listen to this, verse 3. Then God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. The serpent in the Bible is a picture of sin and of Satan. And Moses fled from it. I think that's kind of funny. You know, he's standing before the Lord in all this holy moment. He throws his staff on the ground, serpent, and and he takes off. He's running away. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand again. And listen to this. This is so important. God says, take what you have, what's in your hand, your gift, your ability, your strength, and throw it on the ground. What do you mean? Throw it down. Because whatever that gift is, no matter how good a thing it might be, it can be a serpent. 
Folks, our abilities in ministry can come back to bite us when the ministry becomes more important than the Father. When the ministry becomes, oh, this is what I'm about. This is what I do. And I, I don't do anything else because this is what I do. This is what God has given me. This is what was in my hand. Snakes, folks, symbolize power and life to the Egyptians. That's what they would have thought of when they had looked at snakes. Power and life, virility, strength. But we know that snakes can easily bite you and take away your power and take away your life. Be careful because your gift, your ministry, your service can easily become a snake in the grass. That is, you begin to worship the gift instead of the gift giver. James chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, In humility, in humility, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now regardless of what your gift is, you are a doer of the word. And what does the word say? Be humble with that gift. Throw it down. I love this. John Corson says, Ministry is a great servant, but a lousy master. Your abilities, your gifts may be great when it comes to serving, but when they begin to master you, it is a bad thing. I call it the Martha Stewart Syndrome. The Martha Stewart Syndrome. It's when ministry outweighs intimacy. Chapter 10 of the book of Luke in verse 40. We're told that Martha was distracted with all her preparations. You may remember the story. Jesus comes to visit his friends Mary and Martha. And Martha is so busy serving. She's doing ministry. She is at work for the Lord. Using what is in her hands. And Mary's doing nothing but sitting at Jesus' feet. Come on, Mary, help out. Grab the vacuum. Do something here. And she came up to him, Martha, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Guess what? Your ministry can be taken away from you. Your ability can be lost. You might not be able to do for the rest of your life what you're able to do for the Lord right now. It can be taken. But there is something that can never be taken away from you, and that is intimacy with God. So long as that's where your heart is. Hang on to that which will not be taken away. Ministry is important. And God has gifted each and every one of us to do it, but intimacy is more important than ministry. Never forget that. Ministry, by the way, will always be frustrating if you're trying to fulfill your ministry instead of seeking intimacy with your master. Don't let the thing in your hand become so important. God says to Moses, Moses, throw it down. Throw it down and pick it up. Notice how he picks it up. By the tail. Not by the head. Not by the front of all things. Not as if it's important, but by the tail. Just pick it up by the tail and then use it for me. Then... It will be worthwhile. But God not only puts, puts ability into your hands, He gives you something far greater. Second thing, the second component for a useful, effective tool of the Lord is your heart. Your heart. First one's your hand. Second one is your heart. Now be careful here again with the heart. In this world we have this romantic, poetic sense of the heart. Follow your heart. I love what Rich Mullen says. They say, follow your heart, but my heart just led me into my chest. So you've got to be careful in following your heart. Look at what the heart does. Verse 6. Verse 6. Oops, i got to get back to where are we? 
Okay, there it is. Now the Lord furthermore said to Moses, Put your hand into your bosom. Where does he put it? Right over his heart. And so when he put his hand into his bosom and he took it out again, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said again, Put your hand into your bosom. And so when he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And God says, If they won't believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. Now, folks, you may have a gift or ability or a strength or a ministry. And you may be using that for the Lord. And you may be frustrated because it's not impacting people around you for the Lord. Why isn't this working? God gave me the the gift of hospitality and I'm hospitable to everybody but no one's coming to the Lord because of my gift. I don't understand. So what do I do? God says, put your hand over your heart and then take it out and look at it. It's leprous. Leprosy in the Bible is uncleanness. It is a picture of sin as well. And the problem with the heart is if we cling to the heart and we pull out our hands and that's where our sin lies. Moses, put your heart on your hand on your heart. Take it out again. It's unclean. It's incurable. It's horrifying. Leprosy was incurable. In fact, this is a different kind of leprosy than we tend to see today. It was a leprosy that always led to death. In the Bible, folks, this is where man's heart is. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Can we accept that? That the reality is, as good as we may want to be, the intent of our heart is evil from youth. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The implied answer is, nobody can say that. Nobody has the strength, the ability to say, I've made my heart pure. I've got a clean heart now. But something happens here, and the the picture is powerful. When Moses puts his hand back over his heart, the second time, the second time it comes out clean and restored and new, and is the picture of exactly what we said this book is about, redemption. Redemption. Man, the first time I came into life, I had heart and strength and ability and physical flesh, and it was leprous. But the second time, when I have been born again, when I have been reborn by the Spirit, because of the grace of the Father, now my hand is clean, and not because of me. David understood this. Oh, David understood what a redeemed, cleaned heart truly meant. Psalm 51, verse 10, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. But gang, listen, this is wonderful. Redemption is fantastic because not only does God create in you a clean heart, but the heart itself becomes a valuable tool of evangelism. The heart itself, the hand, the gift, the the strength, the ability that you can use for the Lord, that's one component. But your heart, your changed heart, is a powerful tool in the hands of God. Psalm 51 verse 13, David went on and said, Then, once my heart is restored, then, after you've created a clean heart in me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. It's not before. I have no right to stand up as a sinner and tell people that they are sinners or that they need the forgiveness. But I do have a right as a forgiven, clean, redeemed person to talk about Jesus. My heart is clean today, not because of me, but because of Him. How simple is that to say to people, do you want a clean heart? 
I've got one. And I discovered that it wasn't because of me. It was because of the grace of the Father. Romans chapter 10 verse 14. Paul says, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Don't let that word throw you off. It's just without someone who proclaims. How will they proclaim unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Follow Paul. Look at Paul's life as he travels through the book of Acts. In chapter 9, in chapter 22, in chapter 6, he repeats the Damascus Road story over and over and over. It is the story of a man's heart that was leprous but became clean. Of a man who couldn't see but scales fell from his eyes and he was able to see with a vision for the Father. And Paul over and over tells that story. He recounts his conversion. I was on this road. I was headed the wrong direction. And I was murderous in my intent. And Jesus showed up and said, Paul, knock it off. Paraphrase. Stop doing what you're doing. You're persecuting me, Paul. I've got a better plan for you. And Saul, actually, at that time, his life was changed to Paul. Paul understood that our second greatest ministry tool is a clean heart. For by it, we can teach transgressors Jesus' way. And sinners will be converted to Him. Now, wait a minute. You say that the second greatest tool we have is our heart. What's the greatest tool? What's the greatest tool that we have in ministry in this world for Jesus? Verse 9. But if they will not believe even these two signs, or heed what you say, then, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God tells Moses, if they're not going to believe the ability of your hand, if they reject a heart that is cleansed, show them the blood. Show them the blood. Listen, the waters of the Nile meant an awful lot to the people of Egypt. They meant cleanliness. They meant life. They worshipped the Nile God. And they would look at this water as something that brought life to them. It was critical for Egypt, this desert wasteland, to have the Nile River flowing through it. And so the water of the Nile was life. And to the average person, even today, set the Bible aside momentarily, for even the average American today, what is blood a picture of? Death. Blood is a picture of death. When we see it splattered on the road in a news article, pictures, we say, oh, death. When we notice blood blowing out of anywhere, we get very worried because it's death. I don't want the life to flow out of me and, and cause death. And so God says to Moses, interesting, take a bucket or, or some container, scoop out some water out of the Nile, that beautiful, clean, life-giving, sustaining water, and pour it out. And as it hits the ground, it will become blood, and it will disgust people. They'll see that and say, wow, what's going on here? Now, by the way, this is before the Nile itself turns to blood. That's a whole other story coming up later. And that will blow the minds of the Egyptians. And by the way, and I'll just a little side note, do you realize the ten plagues given to Egypt, each one of those target a god that the Egyptians worshipped? Every one of the ten plagues targeted the Egyptian gods. And it was God's way of saying to all the people of Egypt, I'm God, they aren't. <laughs> And so it was with the Nile. Their, their God of the Nile that they worshipped, believed in, trusted as the source of life, would become blood. And in this case, pour out the water of the Nile and it will become blood. Our world today thinks that life-giving water is success, investments, fame, notoriety, material goods. This is life. 
This is sustaining for me. This is how I know that I'm really living. But the reality is all these symbols of life are actually symbols of death. Proverbs 16.25 tells us there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. However, there is a solution to the world's bloody water. The number one component of ministry is His blood. His blood. If they don't believe the first two signs, Moses, show them the blood. Show them the blood. How is this a tool of ministry? First, you take them to the Nile. You take them to that life-sustaining stuff that they believe so much in in this world. And show them that the things of this world lead to death. And then... Point them to the blood that does purify. The blood that can cleanse us. The blood that does redeem. Bring it all back to the authority of the cross. Do you realize what a powerful one-two punch is? This is we all, the church is great at this. Evangelism training. And we have developed manuals. And we have developed reams and reams. Of, we've killed a lot of trees for the paper that we use to teach people how to do ministry. And God says, do you want the simplest tool for evangelism? It is your changed life and the blood of Jesus. That's it. Is that not simple? My life is totally changed, totally different. Why is that, Rick? Because of the blood of Christ. Anybody can tell anybody that. You don't have to have a degree in theology. In fact, I would recommend against it. You don't have to be well learned. You don't have to be greatly intelligent. All you have to know is that God has changed you and that His blood has redeemed you. Hallelujah. Although it does sound a little absurd. Especially in our world, we think that's not going to attract anybody. The blood? The blood? Paul once apparently thought the same thing. Interesting story. In Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Athens. Athens, Greece. The seat of oratorical skill. Of philosophy. Smart people there in Athens. And the Bible tells us they love to sit around all day long and just jabber. Just talk philosophy. They just love to have their ears tickled. Paul walks into this town and sees all the gods... All the idols. And he even finds one to an own unknown God. And with great oratory, and read it sometime, Acts 18, Paul begins to describe this unknown God. And you know what Paul doesn't do in that passage? He doesn't go to the cross. He gets close. Oh, he talks about God, the God in whom we live and breathe and have our very being, and it's powerful oratory. But he doesn't go to the cross. And Paul never planted a church in Athens. Right after his experience in Athens, one, two people out of all the people that he spoke to became believers. Nobody else did. He was laughed off the stage of the Areopagus, and so he heads out of Athens, and the next place he ends up is in Corinth. Listen to what he writes about that experience. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, and it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Yes. And he says, when I came to you, brethren, when I came into Corinth, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about Athens, I think. I didn't come to you like I did in Athens with great speaking skills and talking philosophy. I didn't come to you that way. When I came to you, brethren, I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think I've told some of you before, and this kind of cracks me up. My roommate in college, we went in for our first Bible test. And our professor was one who believed that you shamed the students first and then you could teach them. 
So we got we start reading this test going, I thought I knew the Bible, I had no idea. We I failed it miserably. My roommate didn't even do any of the tests. He just turned over the back page and wrote, I choose only to know Christ and Him crucified. And he got an F plus for that one. <laughs> the message of the cross, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, but then it's the power of God for salvation. And you know what's great about the message of the cross? We didn't make it up. We wouldn't have come up with that. When you put it into the hands of the human, and I, and I shudder to say that in the church worldwide, when we try to make the church people-worthy, it's really hard to get people to buy into that. But when you give the message of the cross, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is God's power for salvation. Paul said it in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So let me ask you, when was the last time you simply shared the cross with somebody? The cross. I have so many conversations with people who come and they say, Rick, I, I, I really want to talk to my husband about this. I'm just not sure how to do this. Or I, really, I have a friend here who doesn't understand the Bible and, and I really want to bring him to church. And, and I think, man, before you ever invite him to church, talk about the cross. Take him first to the message of the cross. Jesus said in John 12:32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John tells us he was speaking of the cross. You've got your hands, things in your hands that you can use. You have gifts, talents, abilities. Lay them down before the Lord, then pick them up and use them for the Lord. And if you're a Christian, you've got the powerful witness of a leprous history, but now a clean heart. Share that. Tell people how it has changed you, how Jesus has purified your life. But never forget that the centerpiece of life and ministry is also the source of our redemption. It's the blood of the cross. The water of Egypt, the world, only leads to death. But the blood of Jesus is living water. And it leads to eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, there is not a believer in this room this morning who is here because we earned the right to be here. Not a one of us, Lord, who got out the broom and tried to clean up our own lives without discovering that we could not do it. Jesus, we are saved by your blood and a very simple and brutal message of the crucifixion. The fact that you were willing to go to the cross bearing our sins on your shoulders. God, the Bible even saying to us that you became sin. Jesus, we don't deserve that. But we do recognize that this is our salvation. Father, I just pray that as we continue to study your word, that as I prayed before, you would make us doers of the word. And not just hearers. Make us doers, Father, pointing out to us the very simple things that sit in our hands. The things you've given us that we can do. Demystify, Lord, the gifts and and make them clear to us. And just show us our abilities that we can hand over to you. But, Father, help us to recognize that there is a danger in us placing our confidence in the gifts. In the abilities, in the strength. Make us doers of the word, Father. Help us.
recognize how you cleaned our hearts up and made us right and pure and whole. And give us the words of the blood, Father. If you're not a believer this morning, as we continue to pray, I hope you hear loud and clear that there are no believers who in and of themselves get right before God. God makes us right by His blood. And if you just want to have a relationship with the Father, if you want to be intimate with Him, would you just pray after me? And believers, pray this as well. We reaffirm this every time we go before the Father. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe, Jesus, that you died on that cruel cross. I believe that you rose again to life three days later, conquering death once and for all. And I believe that salvation comes from none other than you, Lord Jesus. And so now, Jesus, I confess my sin to you. And I ask for forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you will come into my life and be my Savior and be my Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.